Good morning. I don't know if you heard that earlier, but Pastor Dave is upstairs right now uh, leading our uh, children's ministry stuff. And a part of that role is actually him leading singing. So he's going to be up there dancing and doing all the actions of the songs. And so I was thinking this morning, rather than me preach, nobody wants to hear me drone on anyway. Let's just shut this thing down. Let's go upstairs and laugh at Dave. What do you think? <laughs> well, grab the candles. Let's go. <laughs> Hey, anyway, I want to jump right into our message today. We've got a lot to talk about. Over the last number of weeks, we have been going through our Game Changer series in the book of Luke, working our way through Luke, uh, looking at how Jesus came. And when he came, he changed the way that we did things. He was this ultimate game changer. He changed the way that we interacted with God. He changed the way that we look at religion. He changed the way we function in our relationships. And of course, he changed the way that we deal with sin. And so as we approach the text this morning in Luke chapter 7, that's where we're going to be camping out this morning is the beginning of Luke chapter 7. As we approach this point in our text, this game-changing Jesus is really starting to draw a lot of attention. And people are coming from all over the place to hear Jesus. And he's outside of this town right now in Luke chapter 7. He's just outside of this town called Capernaum. And Capernaum is a town of about 1,500 people, and it's about 120 kilometers north of Jerusalem. And people are coming from everywhere, all different regions, to hear him speak and, and to, to be healed by him and to hear his teachings. We read that he's, the people are coming from as far as Jerusalem. So it's a 120 kilometer walk. This isn't like hopping in your car and driving a red deer to catch church in the morning. This is a totally different experience. You're packing up the family, the kids are whining all the way, you're trekking through the wilderness, all that food, all that gear. And when you get there to Capernaum, you still have to find him. It's not like they would have just had like a GPS thing and there he was. It didn't work like that. They would have had to find where he was. Then they would have been able to experience his teaching and eventually they'd have to walk back home. I know for myself, like uh, my family, we've gone to Disneyland before. And if you've been to Disneyland, they claim it's the happiest place on earth. And we love it, don't get me wrong here. But when you've been walking for an entire day with your children, that place is not the happiest place on earth. There's whining, there's complaining. People did this for four or five days just to go and see Jesus. And, and it makes you wonder, why would anybody go through that? You know, why would you put yourself through all of that? And it's an interesting question. The answer to that question happens 700 years earlier. We get that answer to that question 700 years earlier from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 9 verse 2, when he says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the deep darkness, a light has dawned. Have you ever been in a place of complete darkness? Have you gone into a cave where if you get far enough in, there's no ambient light, nothing's bouncing around? If you're in a place like that and the lights go out, the darkness is so thick you can't even see your face or your hand two inches in front of your face. Uh, that kind of darkness, if you've experienced it, is like stifling. It's like being in water only you can breathe. You just, and, and you just want nothing more than to get out of it. Even the faintest light far away kind of draws you in. And that's what it would have been like for these people. Jesus was this glaring light for them in the darkness. He offered something different, something new. He wasn't just the standard teacher of the day who would, you know, read from the books, of, uh, read from the prophets and, and, and teach the people. It wasn't like that. No, Jesus had power. He had power to forgive sins, heal their bodies, command the natural environment, and even raise the dead. And when somebody changes the game as much as Jesus was changing the game, you go and you see what that light was all about. 
So this is what was happening outside of Capernaum. People were coming and they were gathering around Jesus. People from all over. There would have been a lot of Jewish people in that group. And this is where we're at. And this is where the story begins as we pick up in chapter 7. Jesus is about to enter Capernaum. We read in Luke chapter 7, 1 and 2, when Jesus had finished saying all of these things to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. When Luke was first putting his book together, he, wasn't, uh, he didn't put the chapter numbers and the verse numbers in there. And when you think about that, you're like, well, how would Dave tell us where to go? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but Luke would arrange and had arranged this book in such a way that the details and the stories would point us in a specific direction. It would draw us into the message that he was trying to give us. And so he did this in such a way that, uh, you know, we would understand what was going on. So today's passage, and you're going to have to track with me a little bit here. This, is, this can be a little bit confusing. At the beginning of Luke chapter 7, we see this centurion servant, the story of the centurion servant. Right before this, we've learned that Jesus was out just outside the city gates, and he was preaching and teaching the good news to the poor and the sick. He was giving them good news. Right after this centurion servant story, he leaves that town and he goes to another town and there he sees this, uh, this widow whose son is sick or he's dead, pardon me, and Jesus raises him from the dead. When all of these stories conclude, Luke has led us to this very important moment. We're at a place as the reader where we're about to get the answer to a very pivotal question. And that answer comes through the apostle, or the, uh, uh, pardon me, John the Baptist's disciples. And here it is. They ask him, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, in light of everything we have just learned and the stories that Luke has just brought us through and the things that we see, he set us up perfectly for the answer that Jesus is about to give us. Jesus says, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. For us, this is, for Luke, this is the literary equivalent of him raising his arms and waving them around and going, guys, this is it. This is the guy we've been talking about. This is the Messiah. This is the Holy One of God. And you can place your faith in him. He is worthy to have you place your faith in him. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. This idea of faith in this Holy One of God. Now, the occasion of chapter 7 is this healing. That's the occasion. And it's kind of like a side note. We learn that the healing takes place, but it's more kind of like at the back end of the story, and it just sort of happens. But the point of this story isn't this healing. It's not even the miraculous healing. The point of the story is this faith. It's the faith of the centurion. And it's, this faith isn't just any faith. This is a, a remarkable faith, a faith that Jesus notes and takes notice of. And we read in verse uh, three through five, the centurion heard of Jesus and sent some of the elders of the Jews to ask him, ask, or pardon me, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and he has built our synagogue. Let's just pause there for a second. The Jewish elders would have been either synagogue rulers of the day or they would have been some leader in the community, some civil leader. And so these people would have had influence in the community. The centurion would have commanded 100 men under his command. And he would have been very wealthy. 
I read one note that said a basic Roman soldier would have made 250 to 300 denarii a year, often accepting salt or food as their payment, whereas a centurion would have made 12 times that much, starting at 3,750 denarii a year. Now, Rome would have done that to guarantee his allegiance to them so he wouldn't be partial to anyone else. Capernaum was a city that was along a trade route, and so trade flowed freely through there, and part of the centurion's job would have been to make sure that that trade kept flowing and that the people who ran up and down those trade routes would have been safe from bandits and thieves. And so part of this guy's job would have been to watch over the Jewish citizens there as well. And uh, while he would have had to have, or while he would have been in command over them, he wouldn't have had to like them. And we learn that many of these uh, centurions actually didn't like the Jewish people, but not this guy. This guy, this particular centurion, doesn't just tolerate the Jews, he seems to love them there. And he's even built their synagogue. And so this is all good information. This is good for us to know, and it helps us understand the background for how these Jewish elders are approaching Jesus. They begin this speech to Jesus about this particular man and how he is worthy of Jesus to do this miracle. Can you believe that? They're trying to convince Jesus that this man is worthy of something. Whether they thought it would make them look good to the centurion or they actually cared about this guy, we don't know. But the, the point is, is that when they approached Jesus, they were approaching him on the basis of this guy's merit. You know, this guy has done all this stuff for us. He's built our synagogue. He's done this for us. He's done that for us. Trying to twist Jesus's arm into performing this miracle. But it's interesting to note that the centurion didn't ask, him, ask them to do that. He just said, when he heard Jesus was in town, go and get this man and bring him here so he'll heal my servant. My son Keelan got a drone for Christmas uh, and it was just this little tiny drone that we picked up and it was covered in wire mesh so that it could bounce off of everything and he wouldn't wreck it, he's three. And I won't say who did this because I don't want to embarrass my wife, but somebody stepped on it and broke it. And, uh, oh yeah, we're filming this, I better be careful. We don't know who broke it. Somebody stepped on the drone. And so we had to return this thing. And as I'm standing in the lineup, trying to figure out like how what I'm going to say to these people. I'm trying to come up with ideas of why I would be worthy and based on my merit for them to return it. You know, like, oh, my son, he's so cute. He loved this. It was such a great toy. It didn't last very long. Or, oh, man, this thing's really kind of junky. Like, why, why wouldn't you guys make it better? So anyway, I'm coming up with all these reasons why they should give me grace based on my merit. The good news is it was Costco. And when you're standing in the lineup at Costco for returns, all of your sins are forgiven. You guys, you can return anything you want to Costco. They didn't ask. I didn't even have to tell them anything. But one of the things that one of the ladies said to me as I was returning it, she said, you know, we get a lot of these things back. And it made me think, there is a lot of careless moms out there. (laughs) Oh, I'm going to pay for that. Um, I have a friend who I've known for years. And he grew up in the church. And by all accounts, this guy was a model Christian. When he was in youth group, in his youth group days, he um, invited many of his school friends to church. And uh, as a result of his invitation, actually, many of these kids became Christians. So he he was a good kid. And again, like I said, like a model citizen. But along the way in this guy's life, he had some trials. When he was the early young adult, he had this girl that he loved and they were dating and she ended up breaking up with him and it broke his heart. 
And then he had, these, uh, he had this traumatic event happen where he sustained some physical injuries. And as a result of those physical injuries, he eventually uh, you know, healed up and stuff, but he had to deal with that trauma. But instead of holding on to his faith in Jesus in these trials, he chose to be bitter and angry at God. And he questioned how God could allow these difficult things to happen to him. And he tried to answer that question of how God could allow these difficult things to happen to him on the basis of merit. And on the basis of merit, from his perspective, he was a good guy. You know, if God was going to give anybody a good life and a blessed life, it was going to be him. But that's not what happened. And yet, as I was thinking through that the other day, I'm like, you know what? Jesus didn't have an, uh, an easy existence. He didn't have a trial-free life. And yet, based on merit, he deserved it. In a moment when my friend's faith was tested by the fire and the trials of life, these things revealed what his faith was all about. His faith was based on works. And in the end, they let him down. They didn't add up to enough. And so he walked away from God. If he couldn't earn God's favor, if he couldn't guarantee that he was going to have sort of like an easier existence than everybody else, then he didn't want God. Which is to miss the gospel message completely. Because Jesus didn't come to take the righteous people and say, here, have a better life, have an easier life. That's not why he came. He came to call the sinners to repentance and offer them hope in something that is so much bigger and so much greater than anyone could ever earn. We can't come to Jesus on the basis of merit. We don't have a leg to stand on. Our works don't add up to enough. But that's actually really good news for us. Coming back to the text in verse 6, we see this centurion approach Jesus again, but in a much different way than the Jewish elders. He took all the respect that he had earned and all the authority that he would have been granted by Rome and, and all the power that he wielded as the, centurion's, uh, the, the centurion commander, and he sets that all aside and he reaches out to Jesus with great humility and he says this, he says, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. What a different attitude the centurion approaches Jesus with compared to the Jewish elders. Now, we aren't told uh, how he knows of Jesus. It's likely because Jesus was teaching outside of Capernaum uh, that he would have heard all these stories about Jesus. And uh, we don't really, while we don't know uh, how he knew of Jesus, what we do know about this guy is that whatever he heard about Jesus greatly humbled him. There are many instances in scriptures where we read about people being humbled by Jesus. And one of these such experiences happens to Jesus' disciples. And we read about this experience of these people being humbled by Jesus in Luke chapter 8, verses 22, when their disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus and all of his disciples, they pile into this boat, probably like a glorified canoe, and they jump into this thing and they start heading across the Sea of Galilee. As you can imagine, if you've ever been in a rowboat and you've been in there long enough, you start to kind of get, get a little sleepy. And so Jesus gets sleepy and he curls up on a cushion at the front of the boat and he goes to sleep. And while he's sleeping, this huge squall blows up on the lake and there's a ton of wind and the waves are crashing into the boat. And the disciples are all of a sudden like, we're in trouble. This is no longer a boat ride across the lake. This is a fight for survival. And Mark's account of this story actually tells us that the water was swamping over the edges of the boat to the point where the boat was about to sink. And so you have to wonder at some point how Jesus is actually sleeping through this. You know, I can just see him lying there with his eyes closed. And this is Joel's interpretation. He's lying there with his eyes closed and he's going, when are they going to ask me to help row? 
I wonder what, so anyway, I don't know. That's not in the Bible. But at some point, these disciples get a clue and they, they say, Jesus, you got to save us. Something's going, like the storm is overwhelming us. And they finally call on him and he gets up and he doesn't grab an oar. He stands up and he says, and he rebukes the waves and the wind. And the most amazing thing happens. Everything stops and gets calm. And it blows their minds. In fear and amazement, they ask one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the waves, and then they obey him? They are humbled at what they are learning about Jesus. This is where the faith of the centurion comes from. Whether he, uh, uh, pardon me, whatever he knew about Jesus allowed him to, ha- uh, to see this significant power and authority that Jesus wielded. And he just gives himself over to Jesus. And he says, for I myself am a man under authority who with soldiers under me, I tell this one, go, and he goes. I say to that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. I mean, this guy, this centurion got the idea of power and authority and it allowed him to see Jesus with the proper perspective. And I love this. In verse nine, we see Jesus's response. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him and turning to the crowd following him, he said, now keep in mind, pardon me, this crowd would have been mostly Jewish people gathering and it was this big group of people who had seen all this amazing stuff that Jesus had been doing. Jesus says, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Like that comment must have landed like a lead balloon on these people. Excuse me? I mean, keep in mind, Jesus' disciples would have been in that group. Not much of a crowd pleaser comment, Jesus. Maybe, you know, hold that back. Keep that to yourself next time. And yet, Jesus is saying here to these people, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. And then he's amazed at this centurion. The word that Luke uses here to describe Jesus's amazement in Greek is thematso, which means to marvel at. And we only see Jesus thematso in scripture two times. And both of these occurrences are in regards to um, people's faith in him. The first one is here in the positive sense. We see Jesus thematso, or he marvels at the amount of faith that the centurion has. But the second time that we see Jesus amazed at and marvel at somebody's faith is in his hometown of Nazareth. And it's in the negative sense. These are people who would have grown up with Jesus. They are his friends, his relatives. He spent, listen, the son of God, Jesus spent 20 or 30 years with these people growing up. And yet these people amaze Jesus with the lack of faith that they have. Can you imagine if you spent 20 or 30 years with Jesus, would you have more or less faith? And that's why Jesus is amazing. How do you not get it? And he marveled at how little faith they had. One of the most striking things about this passage is that this centurion is not a Jew. He's a Gentile. And that's why it's so shocking. And this foreshadows for us what Jesus is going to do. He's going to throw open the doors. And this invitation isn't going to be for the Jews anymore. Not just for the Jews. It's going to be for everybody. But in the moment, in this moment, Jesus is effectively saying to the Jews, he's saying, shame on you. You guys even have the law and you guys aren't figuring this out. What's wrong with you? The people who should have understood it most and been the most receptive to Jesus are the ones that are having the most difficult time accepting him. And why is that? Why are they having such a hard time with this? Have you ever flown first class? Um, 
my wife and I have had the opportunity to do it a couple of times. Once was uh, for our honeymoon. A friend of mine, his dad worked for Air Canada and they bumped us into first class on one of the legs. And, and so we got to sit in first class, a really neat experience. And then my parents, because of my dad's draw, uh, job, traveled a lot and we used to get the odd upgrades. So once or twice we got to fly first class. Anyway, if you flow in first class, you can relate to the Jewish people. If you're in first class, you're in a category all under your own. When you walk onto that plane, they give you a hot towel and you get to like wash your hands off and re refresh yourself. They give you a little cup of nuts so you can sit there and watch all the poor people walk by. <laughs> they give you a bottle of water. Uh, you get real utensils with your food. The food's even okay. Far better than what you get at the back anyway. And then at the end of it all, they give you a warm cookie. And not just one warm cookie. They'll just keep bringing them if you keep asking. They just wait on you hand and foot. It's awesome. But the problem with first class is, at some, is, is you get used to it. You know, you get used to that. And you kind of look at the people in the back of the plane. And you're like, well, you know, I'm not going to sit back there again after I've experienced this. So you get used to it. And you start to actually think that maybe you deserve it. Like, yeah, that's good enough for them, but not for me. The problem with a first-class passenger or the problem for a first-class passenger is at some point when you're flying first-class in Canada, you're going to hit a snowstorm at an airport and things are going to get backed up. And what happens when you get backed up in an airport is you're trying to jam as many people as you can onto that airplane and there's going to be too many first-class passengers for the eight seats that they you know, put in the first-class cabin. So you're, one of them's going to be in the back or multiple people. So for the downgraded, I'm just speaking, to, you know, this is from some, some experience here. For the downgraded first-class passenger, the back of the plane, it's like a cattle car, okay? It's barely fit for human life. Even the most, uh, you know, uh, you know, we, we, if you sit in the back of the plane most of the time, which of course I do too, uh, we get used to the leg room back there, right? But for the first class passenger, they feel that difference a lot more than we do. This is almost like a spiritual thing for them and it's intolerable. They can hardly wait to get back to just tear a new one off their concierge at the super elite flight desk. The truth is they've earned more, they've paid for more, and they deserve more, Right? This is what the Jewish people and the religious leaders were struggling with then, back then. This was their religion. You know, it was, it was theirs. They deserved it, the kingdom of heaven. They felt like they had earned it and they believed that they had been given more. But Jesus, in this huge game-changing move, steps onto the scene and he says, uh-uh, you didn't earn it. You don't deserve it if this is the way you're going to treat it. And now I'm going to throw the doors open and it's going to be open to everybody, not just you. Everybody's invited to first class now. What? <laughs> no way. I, I traveled WestJet. Um, oh, a little loud there. Uh, I traveled WestJet for a while when they first uh, came onto the scene, and, and uh, they didn't have any of those plus seats. And I remember one time asking, like, do you guys have a first class seat? And they said, oh, no, it's all first class. Uh, just a cute little answer, right? But that's what Jesus does. He's like, no, it's all first class. Everybody's invited. Anybody that will call on the name of the Lord and place their faith in Jesus is invited in, into this. The Jews may have had the first right of refusal on that contract, but eventually everybody is invited into that. This change by Jesus led to the most world-changing religious movement in all of human history. Jesus was a game changer and they didn't like it. This was their game. It was their rules. And then he was messing with their rules. The centurion's faith then stands in contrast to the religious leaders of the day. 
But I don't think that this story is just about showing us how we should judge the religious leaders of the day. I actually think this story shows us how our faith stands in contrast to the religious leaders of the day. One of the commentators um, I was reading this past week says this. He said, the centurion had commendable faith, which reached out to, to God. You know, he seemed to understand and have a significant faith in the power and authority of Jesus. You know, he may not have known that his servant would be healed, but he did know what he was reaching out to and how he was reaching out. And he knew that Jesus had this power and this authority to make it happen. So in great faith and humility, not by his own strength or power, he didn't come in there demanding that he deserved it. He appealed to the power and the authority of Jesus. How does your faith stack up to the centurion? That might be the best way to ask that question to get an easy answer. How does your faith stack up to the centurion? Because we're sitting in a heated room. Most of us have had an $8 Starbucks drink this morning. And we're sitting here and we're comfortable, right? So it's easy to say, yeah, I have faith like the centurion for sure. But let me ask that question in a way that makes it a little bit harder to answer. What happens to your faith when God doesn't answer your prayers for healing? And then you're forced to live with some sort of an illness or a disease. Or when you pray for reconciliation in your marriage and it never happens and you're forced to live with this person that you don't really like anymore. Or when you pray for God to give you a spouse and they never come. He never brings somebody into your life and then you're forced to live a life alone. Or when we pray for the salvation of somebody that we know and we love and then they pass away and they never confess faith in Jesus. Do we still stack up to the faith of the centurion at that point, having this deep, enduring faith in the power and authority of Jesus? Or, you know, is it a little easier at that point to think that maybe God's, maybe God's not cracked up or all he's cracked up to be? It's a little harder to kind of think, well, yeah, like I have faith at that, but like not in his power and authority, not in this situation. God's not a cosmic vending machine. We can't just push buttons and then automatically whatever we want comes out. Everyone is going to have to figure out at some point what to do with their faith when inevitably their prayers go seemingly unanswered. Every one of us is going to experience pushing buttons on that machine and the crunchy bar is going to come out and they want to gloss at raisins. And I hate crunchy bars. You want to know how I know that we're all going to face this moment in our lives where we have this kind of crisis of faith? Because we all die. I think of Lazarus. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, but it wasn't forever. He raised him from the dead and it wasn't like he just walked around forever. After that, at some point, Lazarus died and Jesus didn't raise him a second time. And I think of all the people that Jesus would have healed over his time in ministry at some point, they had Jesus come up to them, lay his hands on them, and pray for, or, or, or heal them. And then he left, and their life was amazing. They were healed from some horrible sickness, and life was better. But later on in life, at some point, they called out to Jesus again, and he didn't heal them. And they must have had this crisis of faith. What do you do with your theology when you pray to God, and all of a sudden, your prayers aren't answered? Is he God at that point, or is he not God? About 17 years ago, I was struggling with a condition known as proctitis, which is a more localized form of colitis. And it caused all sorts of pain in my body, discomfort and bleeding. Uh, the medications and the tests that I had to go through for this condition were almost worse than actually having it. 
Um, and I had prayed lots, prayed and prayed for God to heal me, but the healing never came. And I remember one day as I was uh, getting ready for school, I was in university at the time, uh, had gone back as an adult, and I felt like God was saying in my heart, Joel, pray for healing. I'm like, okay, well, I have been praying for healing, but that morning I earnestly prayed for healing. And nothing happened. I remember thinking, though, at the time, pardon me, that I believed that God could do it. I just wasn't sure if he was going to do it. But I believed that he could, and I had faith that he could do it. And I prayed earnestly that morning, but it never came. And so after that, I just continued to pray day after day for several weeks. And I think the weeks turned into to months. What's not uncommon when you have this condition is for you to have flare-ups. And so the condition can go away. The symptoms can go away for a while. But after, you know... Uh, maybe a couple of weeks, sometimes a month, they would come back. And this was regular. You'd have a flare-up, it would last months, and then you'd work hard taking all this medication, and eventually it would calm down, and then you'd get a few weeks reprieve. So it's not uncommon for stuff to go away. After I'd prayed for months and months, the symptoms went away. I thought, oh, okay, here we go. What's, what has been completely uncommon is that since those days when I prayed and then I, the symptoms went away, is that I have never had another symptom again. It has been 17 years and I have not had another symptom of this disease. I've gone through tests regularly, biopsies, because they want to keep an eye on me, and they never show any sign of the condition. I went from spending hundreds of dollars a month on medication to zero for 17 years, and hopefully it'll continue on. So to me, that's a miracle. God healed me. My point is this in telling you this story. At some point in my life, I'm going to die. And I'm not trying to be dark here this morning. It's either going to be from old age or it's going to be from something else. And my prayer at that time might be, God, please heal me. And the answer is going to be no. What do we do when that moment comes? Do we drop our faith in God because he's not powerful enough to heal me again? Or do we drop our faith in God because he's a jerk for not healing me when he could have? My friend whose story I told you, he dropped his faith. That's one of the scary realities of what happens when we base our faith in something other than or someone other than the power and authority of Jesus. It's not going to be enough. Here's what I want to say. We don't need to completely understand the will of God on this planet or for our lives. But what we do need to completely understand is that not understanding the will of God doesn't reduce the power of Jesus and doesn't reduce his authority. It just... It doesn't change uh, his reign over our lives. It just means that we don't understand why stuff, some stuff is happening. So when the answer to our prayer is no, he is still all powerful. He still holds our salvation in his hand. You know, it doesn't matter if it's confusing here. He is still, we can still have this rock solid faith in him. And we can celebrate in knowing that we're on the winning team. Our illness, our pain, our death, all of that kind of stuff is just the purification of our faith, which is demonstrating as it continues to cling to Jesus, the security of our future in heaven with him. And our perseverance in him uh, brings glory to him by demonstrating that he is worth holding on to. The apostle Peter wrote about this kind of faith for the early Christians. They were suffering, these people, these early Christians, they were suffering. And he, um, Peter tells us this in 1 Peter. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. 
This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power into the coming, uh, until the coming of the salvation, which is ready to be revealed in the last time. This is for us. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined in the fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. This, this again, this is for us. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with this inexpressible, glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your soul. That's awesome news for us. That verse has meant a lot to me over the years as I've gone through some really difficult times. It's encouraged me to hold on to Jesus. Going back to Luke, there's one thing that I love about this passage, and it's that Jesus performs this miracle for the centurion without even going to his house. And I think that this has an incredible parallel for us today because if Jesus can do a miracle without going into that guy's house, just maybe he can do one for us too. This centurion still reached out to Jesus with this astonishing recognition of his power and authority. He believed Jesus' power wasn't limited to physical space and that his surroundings, he was right. And that means he's not limited to ours as well. So here's a couple of faith calibrating questions for you. One, is God all powerful? Not just in the good moments, in the tough moments when the answer is no. Is he all powerful still? Yes or no? Here's another one. Is he in control of everything? Yes or no? When things seem like they're spinning out of control in your life or when things look like they're falling apart in the world, I think we can relate to this today. Is God still in control? Yes or no? If he isn't, let's just pack up. You guys can save 10% off the top. We'll sleep in on Sunday morning and we'll be done. What do you think? But if the answer is yes, and he is, then we need to start living like that. Like he is all powerful and like he does have authority over our lives. It means that whether he is two kilometers away or whether he's 2,000 kilometers away or he's sitting on his throne room in heaven, he is still all powerful. And he is in complete control of every situation that happens to us. He is omnipotent in the scope of his power. And that's some pretty good news for us because that means that we cannot escape his grasp no matter how ridiculous, how painful, how sorrowful our life seems to get. He is still in control of everything that's happening all around us and we are right in the center of his will. So where does that leave us? As a contractor, I would do work in people's houses and... Um, I would take note of what was important to people because a good job meant different things to different people. And so I would pay attention to what they, what they wanted. For some people, it meant just show up on time. You know, just, just be a contractor that comes. Please, just come to our house regularly like you said you were going to. That's like a big deal. For other people, it was, uh, you know, just keep the site clean and everything will be good. Others wanted you to have a relationship with them because if you had a relationship, at least they would feel confident and comfortable knowing that their house was taken care of. Other people would want you to obsess over specific details of the job. And as long as you obsessed over those two and got them right, it was all good. You know, as long as, you know, the drywall could be bad, the framing could be bad, but as long as the carpet was soft, we're all good. <laughs> we did a better job than that, okay? <laughs> when Jesus saw the kind of faith being displayed from this centurion, he was amazed. And he took note of that. 
And we need to pay attention here because if Jesus was amazed at his faith, then we need to note that as something. My fear for us today is this, is that, our faith, is that in our faith, we don't fully grasp the power and authority of Jesus in our lives. We treat our faith like an RSP, like something that has value later in life, but right now, eh, it doesn't mean anything. In our misplaced or weak faith, we can strip out all of the power and all of the authority that is in Jesus to have an abundant life right here and right now, to make us more like him, to help us beat our addictions, to help us love each other more, to help us mature in our faith, to help us actually care about people who don't know him. This is my fear. And it's what the apostle Paul wrote about to Timothy when he wrote, they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. You know, I think as like North American Christians, if we dig down deep, we might go like, oh my goodness, that might actually be me. I'm not sure I fully grasp the power and authority of Jesus. Yeah, I have faith, but only for down the road. I don't know if I actually believe that when I pray for healing, I'm gonna get it. Or that he can do it, I should say. Jesus wants us to have a deep understanding of his power and authority over all things because he has shown us The one who understands this can have a great faith in him. This will change how we live our lives. You can walk through life understanding the great power of your Savior. And pardon me, you can't walk through life understanding the great power of your Savior and not have that constantly be changing you, refining you, making you more like Jesus. If we get it, if we get the power and the authority, then that's going to help us stand through all the trials and the rough stuff that happens on life, in life. One day, and I'll close with this, one day Jesus is going to return and we are going to go to, or we're going to go to be with him. And that's going to be awesome. And he's going to wipe every tear from our, li- our, our eyes. And that's good news for some of us who are suffering right now or will suffer. And this experience will be nothing compared to the glory that we're going to be in. And so this is what I would say. Strap yourself to Jesus and hold on tight. It's only like an eight second ride anyway and then it's over with. This, girl, this world is going to throw everything it has at you. But remember, Jesus has this unending power and complete authority. So your faith is well-founded when you place it in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that you are all-powerful. You are mighty to save. You are the rock in which we can place our faith and it will be unmovable regardless of what is happening in our world, in our lives, God, understanding and believing that you have the power to do anything gives us great confidence and great hope for the future. God, if we're struggling in our faith with you, I pray you would meet us there and you would show us how much authority and how much power that you have here. Don't let any one of our Uh, friends or any one of the people here in this building, don't let us walk away from this life without having an understanding of this deep faith and deep power that you have, God, for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.